The sermon for today is taken from John chapter 7, verse 37 to 52. This is the word of God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this, is really, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Pamela. Please uh, keep your Bibles in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. We're going to stay there this morning. Again, we're continuing our series on the Gospel of John. Now, at the end of chapter 7, the climactic part of this chapter, where Jesus, throughout this chapter, as we've seen, friends, has gone through several layers of rejection. He's gone through the rejection of his brothers who are there in the midst of the feast. He's also being rejected by the Pharisees. And in chapter 6, he was just rejected by about 5,000 families because of what he was preaching. So all over and over again, the Gospel of John tells us that there's the light of the world, the Word of God himself who came in chapter 1 and throughout his whole ministry was rejected by his own people. Chapter 7 was no exception to that. Chapter 7, we saw Jesus over and over again proclaiming that he is the eternal one of God, proclaiming that he's now the living water, proclaiming that he's been sent by the Father himself, that anyone who believed in Jesus Christ will have life in him. And yet over and over again, the Pharisees went after him. At the start of chapter 7, people tried to kill him. His brothers rejected him. They mocked him. And it's all just a foretaste of the hour that is to come when Jesus would climb on the cross to die for those who scorned him. And in the climactic part of this chapter from verse 37 to 52, we're going to see some of the themes of the Gospel of John kind of come together in a climactic point that kind of foreshadows the cross later on, some of the themes that we saw in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Remember, just a few reminders now from last week as well and from chapter 3, Nicodemus, who we saw here, he was the one in chapter 3 who came to Jesus in his self-righteousness, challenged Jesus, and in pride saying that he's the Pharisee, he's the one from the law, he's the one who knows the scriptures, and he challenged Jesus in his own self-righteousness, and Jesus rebuked him back. What did Jesus say? No one can come to me, no one can see the kingdom, unless he's been born of water and spirit. O Nicodemus, it is not your authority, it is not your Israelite identity, it is not your religiosity, it is not your power or your wealth or your knowledge of the Hebrew Bible that gets you to God. 
God is sovereign and the wind blows, you know it's sound, but you don't know where it's gonna go. Nicodemus, you are absolutely dependent upon me, the spirit, to come and see the Lord. In chapter four, we also saw Jesus continued on this theme of him being the source of life, that everyone is to be dependent upon him and not their own self-righteousness. But this time, in chapter four, he came to a Samaritan woman who had many husbands. And Jesus came to her as she was drawing water from a well. What did Jesus say? If you thirst, as our assurance of pardon says, and you drink from this normal physical water, you shall thirst again. But I am the true living water. If you drink from me, you shall never thirst. And provocatively, with this beautiful image, the Samaritan woman saw that Jesus knew everything she had ever done and embraced her anyway, cleansed her of her shame, and immediately in that moment, what did she do? She left her bucket of water by the well, ran to her town, told every single person about Jesus, and they came and they believed in him. No more did her shame cover her. No more did she feel guilty so that she couldn't come to the other people in the Samaritan town. No more did she feel that her, her, the gossip around her, the public reputation of her, hindered her from telling others about Jesus. She has drank from the living water and she overflowed. She can't help it. She must tell others about Jesus. And these two themes come to a head in this chapter. At the end of the Feast of Booths, remember this feast was a time where the Jewish people gathered for eight days to celebrate the presence of God, to celebrate the fact that God has established his presence, the fact that God has established his temple, the fact that God has established his sacrificial system, that God is with his people. And this feast is really a reminder and a celebration of the fact that God has established these things. And at the end of these feasts, Jesus will proclaim something absolutely fantastic, absolutely climactic, and we're going to see the message of it today verses 37 and 52 in chapter 7. So stay with me in these verses. We're going to go verse by verse as we normally do. And let me pray for us. But before we do, here are the three points for today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about our need for living water. We have an absolute need for it. Second, we're going to talk about the overflowing character of this living water just as the Samaritan woman couldn't help herself and tell others about this living water, so will those who believe in Jesus. And third, we're going to talk about the preciousness of this living water. So first, our need for living water, the overflowing nature or character of living water, and third, the preciousness of living water. Let us pray. Father, you have sent your Son who is your very word, the perfect representation of who you are. You have sent him into this dark, dark world, the world of the dead. And you sent him to suffer all things so that we might live and become lights of the world with him. Father, as we come to this text, as we read about this living water, as we come to understand, Lord God, what you've done in Jesus Christ, that he is the fountain, that he is the source, that there is no other cleansing from him, that he is our provision, Father. Help us now understand everything that you want us to understand in this passage. Help us not tire, help us thirst, help us drink, and help me be clear. May your spirit be present with us here. Cause the dead to live, cause the shame to be cleansed. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First point, our need for living water. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now this is emphatic, this is climactic. On the last day of this feast, the Feast of the Booths, again, it's a reminder and celebration of God's presence with his people, the people of God, the Israelites. God dwells among his people. He tabernacled among them. He has established his temple. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, the Gospel of John is reminding us that there's a ceremonious event happening on this great day. All the Jewish readers would have known this. On the last day of the feast, there's this amazing imagery. The priests would come up they would wash themselves as they normally do. They would come up into the temple, and this temple had steps among it, right? They would climb up, and the people would look up upon these priests, and these priests would draw water. They would draw water. And from the top of this temple, from every, a vantage point where everyone could see, they will spill water all over the temple, cleansing everything. This was to indicate, as the priests came up, bathing themselves and washed water all over this temple, pouring water all out among the temple, all amongst the people, it to symbolize two things. First, that God provides. They did this because this was right before the rainy season. They did this in the month of October, as we know now. Even the Israelites did this until today. They did this in the month of October because it anticipates the rainy season. And the rainy season in those times, as it is in many cultures today, the rainy season in those times symbolized a time of prosperity, a time of harvest, a time where the fruits of their labors would flourish because the rain would rain on the crops and the water provides, right? So in the same way, the cleansing of the temple, the pouring out of water from this temple is a reminder to the people of God. Rain will come. God provides. If you're thirsty, if you've been hungry, if there was a famine, remember year after year, rain will come. God will continue to provide for you. But not merely that, the cleansing of the temple, this pouring out of water on this last great day of the feast is a reminder to the people of God what? to enter into the presence of the holy, to enter into the presence of God, there must be cleansing. You have to be cleaned. You have to come before the Lord ready. You have to come holy. You have to come in a way where the Lord provides the very means for you to come to him, right? The water coming out of the temple is a reminder to us that we don't bring our own waters to God. We don't bring with our own little jugs of water, pouring ourselves out into the water and then now coming unto God. No, it's a reminder that God is the one who established all these things. God is the one who tells us, come now to me. I have provided the cleansing for you. Come now into the temple because here is living water. Here is the water that cleanses you. Now come into my presence. And here in the midst of this, friends, imagine the scene. And this last day, as the priests were coming out, as they drew water to pour out among the people, Jesus stood up. In this last day, imagine the imagery. He stood up and he cried out this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
It's almost as if the priests are, are pulling out this water, they're pouring it out all this water in front of the people, reminding them of the presence of God, and Jesus is drawing attention away from these priests who are sinners, away from this temple, which is finite, away from these waters, which is metaphorical, and he's telling them, no, 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 that's a shadow of things to come. That's done and over with. No, you come to me. I am the source of living water. I am the true temple. I am the one who cleanses you. I am the one who provides. If you come to this water, you're going to thirst again. And this is why we're going to do this year after year. But instead, Jesus is saying, look away from these things. You have rejected me. You have avoided me. You have scorned me. And yet you are in the middle of this feast celebrating whose presence? My presence. Jesus is saying to them, in the midst of all of this, what? Look away from the types and the shadows of the things to come. I am the real substance. You come to me. And if you thirst, you come to me. And it is significant that Jesus says this right after verse 35. Look at verse 35 again, right? The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does it mean? when he says, you will seek me and you will not find me, right? Jesus is saying in the midst of this great day, the last objection that John records here is that the Jews are saying, we're gonna reject this false teacher, we're gonna reject this false Messiah, we're gonna reject this mere man, and what's this man going to do? He's gonna leave us, he's gonna leave the Jews, he's gonna leave his own people, and he's gonna go to the Greeks, he's gonna go to the, to the, to the impure people, to the people who are not of God's chosen people, to the people who, who are dirty, to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the people who are not part of Israel, right? And what is Jesus saying? Oh, Israelites, do you think you're any better than the Greeks? Do you think because you have the temple, do you think because you celebrate these things every year, do you think you're any better than the Greeks? No. Who did I come for? Did I come for those who are filled? Or did I come for those who are thirsty of righteousness? No, the Greeks need this just as much as you. What's your past? What's your background? What's your family identity? Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Are you a Greek? In other words, have you been going to church all your life? Did you grow up here? Do you come here every week since you were a little kid? Or did you live in ignorance? Did you live in a lifestyle that was completely and utterly and self-consciously against God? Where are you at in your life? Jesus is saying, Greek or Israelite? Gentile or Pharisee? Pagan or churchgoer? Come to me. If you're thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Friends, are you thirsty? Are you, are you coming to church and you're feeling like your life isn't put together? Are you coming to church and you're feeling condemned? Are you feel, are you coming, do you come to church? Do you fear coming to church because of this? Have you ever said to yourself, I can't come to church because I know I don't have my life put together. I'm not going to feel put together. I'm going to come to church and people are going to look down on me because I don't have my life put together. I know what I did last night. I know what I did over the weekend. I know what I struggle with. I know I struggle with anger or depression or lust. I can't come to church. 
I don't have my life put together. I, ca I can't come to church. You know, you, know what's, you know what's a saying? If Jesus is right here, you know what's that's like? That's like you're being in a desert. You're in a desert, and you're saying you're thirsty. You thirst. You need water. You've been dry. You're spiritually dry. You're hungry. You're thirsty, and you're saying, I need some water. I need some water. And Jesus is saying, here is an oasis. And if you're telling yourself, I can't come to church because I'm guilty. I can't come to church because I'm shameful. I can't come to church because I've been prideful. I can't come to church because I've been mocking God my whole life. You know what that's like saying? That's like saying you're, you're in the desert, you're thirsty, you see an oasis, and then you go out and you avoid the oasis, and you say, maybe I could find water here. We have left the fountain of living waters, and we have tried since Genesis 3 to cover our nakedness with fig leaves covering out our own sources of water that doesn't hold any water. We've avoided the source of water himself and we have said to ourselves, I will avoid life. But here is life. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. Are you a Greek? Are you a pagan? Come to Jesus. Have you been going to church here of your life? You need this water for you too. The gospel is not you come in to be saved and then now you go and work on something else. The gospel is the water that you need to sustain yourself. The gospel doesn't merely cleanse you. It provides. It keeps you going. It gets you stronger. Just a couple of months ago, I had a coffee with, with a new friend and um, she was telling me that she had stopped going to church because a spiritual, because she, she said, she, well, she said this, her issue was, she, she felt condemned as she went to church. She felt that every time she went to church, her conscience was telling her, you shouldn't be here because she didn't felt like it. She didn't feel like she wanted to get closer to God. She didn't feel emotionally ready. She didn't feel her life was put together. And then, get this, she came to a particular spiritual authority And she confessed all of those things to her. And this spiritual authority said, maybe you shouldn't come to church for a while until you get your life put together. Until you become emotionally ready. Then come and worship God. Come back to our fellowship. Come again and be clean. In other words, right, go and put your emotional life together first before you can come and be spiritually prepared to receive God. And as I heard this story, friends, I felt this incredible, intense feeling of grief just welling up inside me. How dare you tell this person that she needs her life to put together. For how dare you put a marker between someone and God? How dare you say, before you drink this water, go run a few laps? How dare you say that there is this barrier between the spiritual leadership of the church and you, the common person? How dare us say that to one another? May we never, ever speak like that. May we never, ever think that way. Are you thirsty? 
Do you feel your need for God? Do you thirst for righteousness? Are you wary? Are you aware of your lack? Are you acknowledged that you're not put together? Friends, none of us are. None of us are. Or else the gospel doesn't make sense. The gospel is not about people who are joyous and are put together and are clean and then they come to God. The gospel is about God coming to us in the midst of our filth so that we might drink of him. Look away from the finite things of your life, all of your many and futile attempts to put together fig leaves for yourself and to drink waters that won't last. Come to God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus. We have a desperate, desperate need for it. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is our second point. What's our second point? This water doesn't merely fill you, friends. It overflows. If you've really drunk from this water, if you know that this water has come into you, if you've really come to Jesus as a true fountain of living water, you will come to him and you will not only be filled, you won't help it, but become an overflowing water yourself. You will overflow with this joy. You will overflow with this passion. You will overflow with the truths of Jesus. And you will inevitably, unquenchably fill other people's with it. It will become very part of who you are. This is not a grammatical mistake. This is not Jesus saying, whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of my heart will come of living water. No, out of his heart will come of living water. Jesus shifts the perspective from saying, I am not merely the source of living water. You drink from me. You will become so cleansed. You will become so pure. You will become so overflowing that if you drink from me, Jesus is saying, out of your very inner being, you won't help it but tell others about him. You can't help it but be a source of cleansing yourself. This is a, by the way, a reversal of the purity laws of the temple, of the purity laws of the Old Testament, of the, of the purity laws of the feast itself. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you, if you go and maybe if you want to get depressed later on, you turn to Leviticus 15 to 17, and you can read all about the purity laws surrounding proper worship, what it is that prepares you to worship God. From chapter 15 to 17 and even chapter 20 to 21, it talks about all these laws that comes before God and how unclean, how, how easy it is for us to become unfit for worship, how easy it is to defile things with ourselves, how easy for us to get defiled, and therefore for other things and other people to be defiled because of us. In chapter 15 to 17, it talks about how bodily discharges, our normal uh, 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 life uh, excretions that come out from our body can make us unfit for worship, male or female. And if you have these normal bodily discharges, you're unfit for worship, you're unclean until the evening, you have to wash your whole body, you have to wash all of your clothes, anything that touches you becomes unclean, so you gotta wash these objects. If you sit on a chair, wash the chair. If you are eating on a table and you've been unclean that day, you have to wash the table. You have to wash your clothes every time you come into the temple, right? Every time you come to worship. In other words, if you are unclean, you make other things unclean, and it's easy, it's incredibly easy for you to be unclean, right? In chapter 17, if you eat an animal from the road, a wild carcass, right, or, or, or something with blood, it says that this will make you unclean because death is a reminder of the fall. There was no death before the fall, and so eating from a dead animal is a reminder of the effects of sin. So if you do that, 
you will become unclean. What do you do? You wash yourself with water, you get your whole body washed, you wash all of your clothes, and then you become unclean for the day. You can't come to worship, in other words. It is incredibly easy to be unclean and incredibly difficult to be clean. This is a, 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 a ritual that, that you have to keep on doing every day, every week, every year. And this is intuitive for us. You know, you spill coffee on your shirt, it takes a split second. Your whole shirt's black. You know, you spill wine on your shirt, split second. And at a, at a mere moment, you're completely dirty. How long does it take you to clean out that coffee, especially if you wash it by hand? Man, it takes forever. A mere 15 seconds, 10 seconds, two seconds can ruin your shirt, can ruin your life. Adam and Eve ate of one fruit and disobeyed God, and all of history shifted. That's what the ritual laws of the Old Testament is communicating to us. You think you're clean? You think these bl the blood of animals could help you? You think this daily washing of your bodies could help you? Do you think you can make other things unclean? I mean, make other things clean? No, you are a source of defilement. God is saying we are a source of defilement. The priests are a source of defilement. The priests not only have to sacrifice lambs for themselves, but also for other people. They too need the sacrifices, right? They too need to be bathed and washed. What is Jesus saying here? Here is the logic of the gospel, friends. Here is the logic of the New Testament that overturns the laws of the old. That is the reality to which the Old Testament points to. The logic of the New Testament reverses it all and says this. You were once dirty. We were once sources of defilement. And it is incredibly easy to spoil things around us. The moment the fall occurred, there was murder, there was plagues, there was all kinds of sin that defile one another. And Jesus is now saying, here is the reversal. You come to me and suddenly it is easier, more natural. The natural proclivity, tendency of our hearts. You are so cleansed, friends, that it is more natural, more easy, more, more, more everything, it just inclines towards your life cleansing other people. There is no more a separation between you and the priest, no more a separation between you and the elder, no more separation between us from one another. There is no more fear that we are still shamed so that we will spread other people with our shame as if our presence in the midst of others will ruin their reputation, no. What Jesus is saying here, that the cleansing that he brings, the spirit that is with him, is such a powerful generative force that he recreates you anew, so much so that you too become a source of life-giving resurrection power. Do you believe that about yourself? Do we believe that about ourselves? When we come out of this world, do we sense the fact 
that we have been so cleansed? Do we sense the fact that people need this living water? Do we sense the fact that we also need this living water, that we're no longer who we were? We're now different people. We've drank from this living water. The Spirit is now in us. We have received Him. The Spirit has been given and poured out upon us so that no more guilt will now surround us. Why is your conscience still condemning us then? Well, we come out and share the gospel. Have you ever felt unworthy? I can't tell this person that. That person knew me. That person knows what I'm like. My parents knew what I was like. My spouse knew what I was like. My children knew what I was like. I can't tell them what to do. I can't tell them to believe in Jesus if they knew my life. No. Friends, we are so cleansed that we become sources of cleansing ourselves. We are so cleansed that it is no longer the opinions of your own condemning conscience, no more the opinions of your old friends, your families, your spouses, your kids. Jesus' life and death defines who we are. Go be a source of this living water. There's no separation between you and him. No more separation between us and the priests. No more separation between us and each other. We're now agents of reconciliation, sources of living water. Go and be bold. And this is exactly what happened. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And by the way, it is significant that verse 40, it says, when they heard these words, Proverbs 18 verse 4 says that out of the words of a man comes wisdom that is fountain of living water. Proverbs 18 verse 4, that's talking about Jesus, right? The words that he brings forth from his mouth, the spirit works through the words. The spirit doesn't work independent of theology. The spirit doesn't work independent of God's words. The spirit works through words. With words come death and life. When they heard these words and fulfilling the prophecy of Proverbs, they were immediately stirred up. They can't help it. This is the prophet. This is the Christ. This is the Savior. No one spoke like this man. They can't help it. They, they can't help but, but talk to one another. We're creatures of praise, right? We see a sunset. We can't help but and say, look at this. This is beautiful. We saw significant moments of beauty, a, a beautiful orchestra playing before us. We can't help but listen to this. They heard these words. They drank from this water. The Spirit entered them. And what? I can't help it. This is the Christ. Let me tell you, this is amazing. Listen to him. They pointed away from themselves. This is the Christ. This is the prophet. And look, there was a division. On the one hand, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. Others debated among themselves. They continued to doubt. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They doubted. They continued to doubt. And the irony of it, Jesus is the offspring of David. Before he was a Galilean, he grew up in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, as we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Their doubts didn't make any sense. The same words that brought life continued to pour forth death. So there was a division among the people. Friends, don't be surprised when the truth comes and then there's a division. We live in a 
pluralistic society. We live in a, in a, in a culture that privileges and, and in a certain sense idolizes tolerance. We're very afraid of the truth. Don't categorize people. Don't, don't make divisions. Don't be clear. If you're clear, that means somebody is wrong and other people are right. But here's what Jesus is saying. When the word of God is being preached, when the spirit of God comes forth, there will always be division. You can't stay in the middle. When you're neutral, when we are neutral, when we come away looking like the world, when we're unclear about who Christ is, then of course people, there's all this wiggle room. Oh, well, maybe he's just a good teacher. You know, maybe he's just a good man. Okay, you know, we can all agree on that. Every religion is great. But no, when the truth comes, there will always be division. This is the Christ, or is he not? Is he the biblical Jesus, or is he not? It overflows, friends. You can't help it. You won't be able to relate the same way to people anymore. You won't be able to keep this within yourself anymore. This becomes who you are. Christianity is not about something you do and you achieve, something you earn. No, Christianity is something you become. Christ dwells in you. Live out who you are. People can tell when you're being an authentic. Christianity says this is now who you authentically are. You will be a source of living water. And this debate continues. And we're going to go to our third and final point. The preciousness of living water. The preciousness of living water. And I want us to see this. This is incredible. The officers then came to the chief priests. This is verse 45. And said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The division continues, right? The officers who were who? Greeks, Gentiles, Romans, pagans, they believed in Jesus just as much as those other people who are enjoying the Feast of the, of the, of the Booths were believing in the Jesus. Gentiles and, 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 and Israelites were coming together. They were being united together in their belief over Christ as the Spirit has united them together. Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man, proving Jesus' words again. If you thirst, anyone, come to me, you will be united, right? The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? There was a debate. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Surely the Pharisees are saying, okay, officers believe in him. They don't know any better. They're Romans. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. They don't know the law. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Israelite temples and ways. Surely, None of the Pharisees believed in him. Surely. And who came in in verse 50? Nicodemus, from chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Nicodemus, whose name means the conquering one. Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Nicodemus, the rich ruler. Nicodemus, the religious authority who had gone to him before, the text is emphasizing. How did he, uh, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? When, when Nicodemus came to Jesus before, no one could be born, no one could see the kingdom of God unless they'd been born of water and spirit. Nicodemus would come to him before, implying that he's drank from this water, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him hearing and learning? what he does. Echoing Jesus' words, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
Nicodemus, the self-righteous, Nicodemus, the religious authority who hated Jesus, Nicodemus, who once came to Jesus in secret in the night to mock him, to use the Bible against him, echoing the words of Jesus himself. Against who? His own people. A Pharisee turning against the Pharisees, seeing the truths of Jesus and saying, listen to him. And the next verse confirms it. Look at verse 52. They replied, you from Galilee too? You one of him? You one of these Jesus followers? You from his hometown? I thought you were one of us. I thought you weren't about this Jesus figure. We sent you to go challenge him. We sent you. You were representing us in John chapter 3. You came to him in the night. You challenged him. You knew your Bible, Nicodemus. Why are you now sounding like a Galilean? Why are you now sounding like Jesus? You from Galilee too? What is happening to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is drank from this water. It overflows from him. He can't help it. He sees justice. He sees all of this. And he's saying, do not judge by appearances. Judge by right judgment, echoing Jesus in John 7, 24. And he's saying, listen to him first. Give him a hearing first. Listen to what he's got to say. Suddenly, Nicodemus is saying, my friends don't matter to me. Suddenly, Nicodemus is saying, I'm no, no, I don't think like you anymore. I can't think the way you do anymore. I can't stop thinking about Christ. I can't keep rejecting Jesus. No, listen to Jesus. He might be right. What if he is? What if he is a source of living water? This is further confirmed, friends. Turn your Bible to John chapter 19. We're going to see the climactic life of Nicodemus keep developing. Turn your Bibles to chapter 19. Look at verse 38 and 39. This is after Jesus was buried. Look at this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So Jesus had been crucified. He is now dead, and they're burying him. And they came away and took his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier, noting a previous life, had come to Jesus by night. By the way, night imagery in the Gospel of John is significant. Night imagery echoes the prologue, chapter one, right? Jesus is the light of the world that comes into the darkness. Earlier, Nicodemus came at night, but no longer. What did he bring? He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Don't pass over this. To understand what Nicodemus is doing here, remember, just, just focus on this one thing. What did he bring? He not only came in the night, the, the, the narrator emphasizes that Nicodemus no longer came in the night, Nicodemus came now in public, right? No longer in shame or secrecy, no longer to attack Jesus, to give him respect, sincere thankfulness. What did he bring? Aloes, which is a kind of perfume, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds is an English translation to pounds, but it's really 100 Roman pounds called litras in, in the Greek. But 75 pounds in weight, 
friends, it's a lot of perfume. It's a lot of perfume. To understand this really quickly, you don't have to turn there. In John chapter 12, Mary brought to Jesus, right? John chapter 12, verse 3 to 8, you can look at this later, a, a pound, a single pound of perfume, a single pound of perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet, and the whole house smelled like perfume. And a single pound of perfume, friends, is worth one year of your wages. A single pound of perfume is worth one year of your wages. The moment she did this, Judas came, and Judas says, this is such a waste. What are you doing? You could have used this money for the poor. You could have sold this. You could have done so many things with it. You could, you could have, this, this is on Anna's feet. What a waste. What is Nicodemus doing? Nicodemus brought 75 pounds. Friends, that's a lifetime's worth of treasures. This is equivalent to selling your house. This is equivalent to giving everything you've ever got. This is equivalent to liquidifying all of your savings. To do what? At a dead man's tomb, covering the body of Jesus with all of your treasures. All of your treasures. Almost as if your life doesn't matter anymore. What did Nicodemus see? What do you see? What do we see here? Friends, Jesus is your life. If you know what Jesus has done for you, if you know how precious it is that he's done for you, if you know, friends, that Jesus is a source of life, that he lived the life that you should have lived, that he gave you this life, that he thirsted on the cross, he is the one who says, I thirst so that you might drink. If you understand, friends, that Jesus is the one who brought you your life, then what does your life mean to you? What is this finite momentary life? What is your life compared to knowing the crucified and resurrection one? Nicodemus is saying, what is my authority? What are all my riches? What is my righteousness? What else do I have? This is the crucified Messiah. I'm gonna give him everything I have. All that I have. Pour it out over his body. Do you see the surpassing worth of Christ? Do you see that he is your life? And friends, if we do so, come to him, the fountain of living water. Pour out your life. It's worth everything. Let's pray. What a gospel, Father. What a gospel that causes us to see things anew. Causes us to see the source of life. Causes us to put things into perspective that all our riches, our wealth, our gold, all our finest perfumes cannot buy. All of them suddenly look incredibly dry, bland, and meaningless compared to the life that you have given us. You, O oh Lord, are our life. You, O oh Lord, are our living water. You, O oh Lord, what else can we live for? 
not the reputation that we once had, not the friends that we once had. No longer does the shame and the guilt that cling to us, no longer the filthy worth of our rags, Father, could ever define us. You are our life. And you resurrected. So that we too could be counted as saints, given new life. We shall resurrect with you. Father, keep our eyes fixed on you and our new identities. Keep us bold. Cause us to see we cannot cause our souls to live, but you did. We lay our crowns before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.